Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? How do I get really cool nose ridges? I just want to look more Bajoran all the time. You know, that would just be the best. But anyway, really excited to have our guest come on today. Before I introduce her, I want to let you know about the voices on this podcast. So I'm, of course, Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone. And also on this podcast is actually just me. So I'm the only host today, which is fun and cool. Haven't had this in a while. Hoping it's going to mean a deeper conversation, but it may not. You never know. Either way, I'm really excited about our guest. We have Dawn Wages. Dawn Waging is joining us from Philly. She is on Twitter as Bajoran Engineer, which is why I had the weird Deep Space Nine Star Trek reference. But either way, super cool. Dawn, how are you doing today? I'm so excited. And there is a picture of me out in the ether with like my makeup Bajoran bridges as well. I am a Bajoran. My partner is a Beta Z. We've decided it. it's for our personal canon. But I'm so excited to be here. Dawn wages she her pronouns. And I am the Python community advocate at Microsoft. I'll not be talking much about work today, but I also am a core team member for Wagtail CMS. I help organize Django cons across the world. This year, it is US and Africa in 2023. And I am a director and treasurer for the Python Software Foundation. Amazing. I have so many questions. I got to go with this relevant one first. Your partner is a beta Z. Often I find people in community management or in OSPOs or working with large communities to be very empathic and very yeah. empathetic. Do you find that you are less empathetic and more religious, which is why you go with the Bajoran denomination of species? Oh, great question. Ugh. You're awesome. Okay, no, I'm actually not very religious, which is really interesting. But I do feel like in a scenario, I am going to be part of the militia fighters. I am going to be scrappy and doing it for years. Kira is one of my favorite people forever. But also Ro Lauren is from Next Generation is actually my favorite Bajoran ever. It's great. Yes. Awesome question. And my partner, I do think, is a huge empath. <laughs> More so than me. So yeah, this is why we gave her that one. <laughs> awesome. Okay, cool. Those of you think, do go watch the entire back all of Star Trek. It only takes around five, six years if you watch one or two episodes a week. Source, <laughs> that's what I've been doing. But okay, speaking of partners, PSF, Python Software Foundation. This is the main foundation dedicated towards sustaining and keeping alive the Python community at large. There are other foundations that also do similar work. For instance, NumFocus has a lot of Python projects in them, but the PSF is dedicated to the Python language and specific things in that general area. Now, when we talk about partnerships, you must therefore work with Deb Nicholson. Is that correct? Deb is great. Deb is brilliant, cool. brilliant, brilliant. I am lucky enough to talk with her more like my weekly, I think. So it's great. Amazing. She's been on this podcast too. So if you want to hear any Deb podcast, do go to podcasts.sustainoss.org. Tell me how you got involved with the PSS and how also how you became the Python community supporter, I believe was the word, advocate at Microsoft. Are those two related? No, no. It's kind of related because we're all running in a little bit in the same circles, which is yeah. one of my initiatives at Python Software Foundation. We really want to broaden the impact and the access people have to the PSF and feel more empowered to join. So, you know, one of my favorite people 
Nina Zakarenko is on the PSF and formerly worked at Microsoft. So it was kind of one of those things. But then also Jeff Triplett, who also works for the Python Software Foundation and is heavy. He's a director and he's heavy in the Django community as well, which is what I originated from. So it feels kind of natural. I threw my hat in the ring for becoming a director last May, I believe. And I won the votes from my peers and really appreciative and honored by getting a director seat. And it stemmed from me being heavily involved in the Django community and then feeling like and seeing an opportunity to expand that and get more general influence and figuring out what the governing body for a sibling community looks like. And they're definitely symbiotic in that way, which is really, really cool. So directorships and foundations is something that we're seeing more as open source ecosystem is generally becoming more mature. For instance, the OSI has just turned 25 this year, which is really exciting. As long-term listeners may know, I'm on the board for a local 501c3 charity, and no one voted for me. There was no throwing my hat in the rink. What happened was that Rick was like, Richard, you're around a lot. Do you want to be on the board? And I'm like, sure, Richard. And now I'm on the board. Can you talk to me about, you just mentioned governance, so I assume you're interested in this. Talk to me about why foundations in the open source space seem to continually have this community voting way of entering into the board. Do you think that's healthy? Do you think it's unhealthy? And did you think about doing that when you were working on Django's new process? So I didn't consider board membership with Django, maybe because, so I'm answering them in reverse order, maybe because it feels a little bit more accessible. I think that the community is perhaps smaller. I mean, if you just compare the two conferences, the main U.S. DjangoCon conference, and also Europe, I've had access to, and then I did virtually DjangoCon Australia. So a little bit of all of them. Tops out about like three to 500 people attending in person a year. And then PyCons have always seemed kind of intimidating to me, where there's maybe like a several thousand people in person. Not the biggest conference in the world, but really is this kind of sweet spot of feeling like you need to know a lot of people. But then there's also a lot of people and then like a lot of famous people in the community. So I think that kind of extrapolates to the way people interact with the community as well. People are just very vocal in the Python community. It is very old community where there's just like levels of just like of, of history and evolution of the ecosystem. So... I felt very involved with Django without any type of official membership and has been friends with a lot of official members and then have also participated in a lot of conference organizing and been able to get on stage and speak on behalf of DjangoCon and been able and encouraged to do so without any type of board seat. And just my introduction to the Python community really came through some official channels. So then that's how I just joined. I think it is a good thing. But I think there's ways that we can make it a better thing. I would love to, and there are existing efforts to expand the number of active PSF members. And there are several ways you can become a PSF member. And we've recently changed some of the barriers to becoming a PSF member either through energy of contributing to back to the community. You need a certain amount of hours a year to be considered a PSF member. And then you apply or you have a certain dollar donation. And I think we've lowered or changed that dollar donation recently. And I think that makes it a lot more accessible. And then we can talk about it in a lot of different places. So we have the diversity inclusion 
team starting to have more meetings and having in at different time zones to get different areas of the world more involved and accessible. And I would love to have PSF table at major conferences around the world. So showing up and having community tables to just talk to everyone should be really, really important. So you just mentioned that Mm -hmm. switching to a hour per year or a dollar amount makes it more accessible. And then you mentioned the DEI committee. Both dollars and time are things which are often barriers to entry for a DEI. So can you explain a bit on how that helps diversity, equity and inclusion versus hurts it? I'm curious. Yeah. So we've lowered the amount that needs to be. Cool. Okay. So that helps. Yes. And so that helps. And it's so interesting that you said that. That's really cool. So I, when I am mentoring, and this is like separate from the PSF, it's some personal relationships. I will say that open source is not accessible for everyone. And it's not a, it's not a great method for everyone because it is people who have some type of support elsewhere somehow to be able to have the time and your resources and, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like, your basic level of resources are met without needing an additional source of income. And I did open source in the very beginning of my career when I was making very, very little money to my detriment. (laughs) I don't know if I would recommend that path to everyone. I'm paying out of pocket to go to some of these conferences with the confidence, seeing all of my peers around me in their successful careers and the connections that I've been able to make with them, that eventually, hopefully, it was going to trickle down into my careers. And these relationships have had very, very long tails. They're very, very sticky. I've made really good friends that people are, I mean, people I'm going to invite to my wedding through these communities. So that's great, but it was absolutely not guaranteed. And I think there's a lot of, I've listened to your most recent episode. It was very, very cool about how to get open source maintainers paid, how to get open source maintainers paid and just waxing poetic on different avenues, how Open Collective is doing it in a very cool way and how we're expecting larger companies to be able to foot some of the bill because of the, just because of the revenue generating that it's open source has been able to give them. I hope some of those mechanisms are going to continue to be developed to offset the financial and time barrier that open source puts on people to make it more sustainable and healthy. Another thing to address the resources, and I'm speaking a little bit all over the place, but hopefully I'm making sense. Wagtail is an open source content management system built on top of Django, and it's mainly maintained by Torchbox, but then also a a great team of volunteers as well. Torchbox is an agency over in Bristol, UK, and that mostly an agency. They have a really great niche as well. I'll let them make their own case, but they're just really great humans. They also have a apprenticeship program. And the more and more I see apprenticeship programs like Outreachy or Google Summer of Code that have dollar amounts attached to contributions without having to require senior levels of experience coming in out the gate and really expecting green engineers to contribute and still get paid and have their needs met. It's just fantastic. So I'm hoping more tools like that still come to the forefront. So one of the questions I have based on what you just said is you lowered the dollar amount so it's easier for people to pay. And you mentioned Open Collective. What benefits would it give an individual to become a member of the PSF 
And is that something that people should think about if they're working in Python? And is it possible to join on behalf of your project and not your company? So one of the things that people can get from donating to the Python Software Foundation beyond feeling involved and really feeling empowered, like we're continuing with this ecosystem, is voting privileges. And you made a really good point. We were were talking previously about how it really is just kind of giving back to the PSF. But you're able to help steer the direction of the Python language in tangible ways by electing leaders and showing up and participating in that membership. And you really made a good point. And I actually, I think I'm going to bring that back to the team on articulating ways that people get some of these benefits in participating in the PSF? And what does it mean beyond that pride in making sure that the PSF continues to run and run smoothly? It's easy to think that that's enough and like, oh, you're involved. That's great. But really empathetically understanding the membership dynamics and why participating is important is really, really a big deal. Yeah, it's a hard problem. So I totally understand. And cool, I'm glad to bring that back. And I'm also really curious whether projects could eventually have a say, just like companies have a say. I looked at your sponsor list. Mm-hmm. It's all massive companies. But I wonder if I work for a large Python project, why can't that be a sponsor too? It's the same sort of thing. It's just not a legal entity, you know? So. Interesting. Yeah. So we have a tool called Fiscal Sponsory with Python Software Foundation that builds a relationship. So it's more symbiotic. So there is a percentage of quote unquote revenue or donations that may come in from that Python project. If there are any, it's part of the application process, but it's not necessary to be approved. So you'll go through an application process with the team. They'll be approved. And then a lot of the overhead that we provide for the Python software, for the Python language through the Python Software Foundation will be done for that package. So if in case you're doing events, right? So I think Boston Python Users Group, Philly Python Users Group are fiscal sponsories. We also have Jazz Band is a fiscal sponsory as well. So we help with some of the trademark things. We help with event insurance, things that just are really tough for smaller organizations to like get their head around and and navigate, we can do some overhead with that as well. I want to change tack a bit. You've mentioned Django a lot. Django Scarupa is a wonderful host on the Sustaining Open Source Design podcast, but I don't think that's what you were talking about. Django is also a Python CMS, which is very, very prevalent and powerful. We haven't had a lot of people from the Django community talk here. So you've mentioned Django cons, a couple of them. Tell me about what the financing structure is for keeping Django going and how they think about sustainability in their community. Yeah, so I'm not the expert on Django financing, but I can tell you that a lot of the funds come from larger organizations. There is a membership structure. We don't expect for the burden to come from the onesie twosie individual members. And that a lot of it goes towards sustaining events and also to the maintainers. And I also want to add, because I mentioned where the money is coming from, a lot of it is helped through the Django Events Foundation of North America, DEFNA. And Django Khan definitely brings in and helps sustain the language itself, along with PyCon for the Python Software Foundation. I know one of the conferences you're having is going to be in Tanzania, which is really cool, and Zanzibar, which I've always wanted to go to Zanzibar. We haven't had a lot of, or I haven't heard a lot about open source 
in East Africa. Have you been to that event before by any chance? Can you say anything about the community? No, this is Khan Africa's first event. They were going to try in 2020. Not a great year to start. And so we're doing it again in 2023. And I've never been to Tanzania, but there is a PyCon Tanzania that is really helpful and successful. Cool. Um, apparently there's like the staining group of sponsors who continue to come back. I'm the sponsor chair for Khan Africa. So they'll be hearing from me. <laughs> and I think the audience of the event changes a little bit depending on what continent you're in. I think this one's a lot for students in universities and they have, and I think this really, really important segment of the Python population that people don't really speak to enough. So really, really excited. Hopefully I can get there in person and be my first time on the continent. Tell me what a sponsor chair does. Yeah, so I've done that for DjangoCon Europe 2019 and DjangoCon US for the past two years. Essentially, our role is to work with and sometimes create the budget, but work with the people who create the budget to get a number that is going to be our goal. Then we start and initiate relationships with different companies most of the time. And then we will match sponsor packages, options for sponsorships with the company that we're communicating with. Sometimes they're donated in kind. That's not very often because really the dollar rules <laughs> or the pound or wherever we are. But we'll have a list of sponsored tiers or packages. And then we'll work with you to try to get some of your initiatives launched. So a lot of times it is hiring. So we'll maybe create a Slack channel for hiring or we'll have a networking event, X, Y, and Z. There are sponsor booths, which are very common. And then we'll work with you to get the screens that you need or the, you know, tablecloth that you're looking for. And it shows up in a lot of different ways. We'll have, and it really in leg forms, we're talking with marketing departments and we're kind of working and navigating marketing needs. We'll get your logo in X place or versus Y place. We'll have this kind of sticky type of visibility that will last for X number of years. We get Y number of views on our YouTube channel. So your logo there is going to be really great. And we're making pitches like that typically. So it sounds like kind of like the major domo of the conference, you know, the person who makes sure everything works behind the scenes. You mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, we were talking about Bajor, that you would be happy to be a militant. You'd have to be in the resistance trying to figure out how things work. But it sounds like you're less of someone who's like wielding a weapon to keep the Cardassians off the planet and much more like someone who's behind the scenes funding the resistance, making sure that all the ships are running, making sure that everything is going smoothly and people are easily able to come in and then do the work that needs to get done. So one of the questions I have for you is, how do you think about return on investment for your ultimate strategy? Why these conferences? Why these two organizations, except that you came from there? What are you resisting against? Like, what's the ultimate narrative arc for your like seven season open source Bajor story? Oh, this is good. My narrative arc are aliens, gods. Nice. Um, <laughs> for a DS9 reference. So I really appreciate the lens you put on it because I find myself wanting to be able to bring Python and specifically Django and to make it really accessible. There's a fantastic keynote talk given by Melanie and Jay last year at DjangoCon 
where we are lifeguards for our community and we all have to kind of learn these attributes to be able to keep people out in the water, the open source community safe. And I think that these in-person events are big tools on creating that presence and that tools. And even when the in-person attendee list is, you know, several hundred deep rather than tens of thousands, which are the actual users of this product, it permeates through. And these views of these videos are seen thousands, tens of thousands of times. And then these ideas also go into team dynamics. And I would like to believe that companies that use Django also have some of the kindness and thoughtfulness that are constant, are consistently pushed in the community as well. From the top down, from Django Software Foundation down throughout the working sphere. So fighting against, I think I, in all senses, I'm like fighting for justice and fighting for equity and inclusion and people to have access to careers that changed their living situation and and, and put them on a career path that they had never imagined before and giving them tools to do so. And I think open source really does that with its many, many faults that we can find because humans have faults as well. And we're all humans just creating open source. I think there's a lot of opportunity in that too. So it's been really fun to use things that the skills that come naturally to me, which is, you know, speaking to people. I am as much as I resist against it. I think I'm a natural salesperson and using that in a way that doesn't feel like icky sales. (laughs) It's tough having sales skills and then feeling like I don't want to sell things I don't believe in. How do I do this? So I really hear you on that one. Great answer. It's awesome. If that's the case, you feel like speaking to people and selling things makes sense. Why are you the treasurer for the PSF? Isn't the treasurer like an admin job? Yeah, I'm also pretty meticulous. It comes cool. it comes in different <laughs> ways, right? I love keeping notes. I, I have a whole methodology on my note-taking ability. And it was really an opportunity for me to raise my hand and chip in. It's something I've done before. And I don't know if being a treasurer is like my passion in life, but it's something I've done before. And keeping the trains running on time is a unappreciated skill of some of these organizations. And I'm, I kind of jumped in to try to help with that one. I can see how if you're trying to level up the community to the point where we're more diverse, more equitous, more better, more goodly. Helping out with conferences, helping out with foundations that seek to maintain the community is a really smart way to go. You mentioned open source is something you've been doing for a long time. It's something you did early on without a lot of pay. It's something that you maybe wouldn't recommend, but it's given you a ton and you think it's beautiful and should probably help other people. Before this podcast, you also mentioned that you're an advisor for the ethical source movement. Ethical source, for those of you who don't remember is another movement going on that's simultaneous to open source, which believes that licensing is great. It's great to have licenses for open source software, but some of the principles in the open source definition as run by the OSI don't go far enough. And we have to ensure that we actually limit the work that we create and make so that certain people can't use it. For instance, unethical corporations, unethical usage of code shouldn't be allowed and it's up to the author to decide how that's going to be disseminated. Now, there's a lot of tension in the community between our ethical source licenses, open source. Well, mm-hmm. no, they're not OSI approved, but they're still a kind of big tent open source. And I'm curious, Don, how do you hold that tension? Where do you fall on the what is ethical source divide? 
I think is capital O, capital S, open source. I appreciate the debate that's going on. And I think it's necessary to be able to move the needle. And I think it's very much in line with the way that licenses are currently being used. And we are making more stipulations on it and their ethical stipulations. And we are just viewing it in a different lens. I think the assumed or the accepted view views it in the lens of capitalism, ever-present, common way of viewing it and is important. And now we are able to use that same mechanism, same tool, and view it in the ethical landscape and the impact it makes down the road for that. And I appreciate it. I'm really glad you brought up capitalism. One of the issues with open source that I see is that it's very good for new beginners in coding because it helps them like jumpstart their career by saying, oh, I got all this experience here. One of the problems with it is that it also requires a huge layout of upfront investment in hours and time, which has no guarantee that it will actually pay off. And in some cases, the open source community and open source work is detrimental to the mental health and general health of the people working in it, especially coming from a DEI perspective. It is hard. It is harder to be a good open source contributor as seen by other people if you don't check all the boxes. So when you talk about ethical source and you talk about keeping that up, but you're also trying to get a ton of students and stuff involved in open source. Don't you see there's a bit of a conflict there? Do you see an issue? No. Excellent question. So I will choose almost to not answer it, but this is strategic. Okay. Yes. Just had a meeting and really right before this an ethical open source where into my niche is the anti-racist license. It is in concert with another open source license that will cover the capitalism of it all, OSI approved license, and they work together. So just wanted to do a shout out to the anti-racist license at the root. And in that meeting, we start all of our meetings with a PIES check-in. I don't know if you're familiar with PIES, but you go through your personal check-in. So you go physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual. We have small meetings. We got to get really efficient when we have larger meetings with larger bodies of people. But we do the person first before we get into the crux of our meeting and our agenda. And we end up being incredibly productive with the last 30 minutes of our meeting and the first 30 minutes we spend on putting our person first. I think there are tools that we can use to be able to acknowledge the humanity of the individuals contributing and being flexible and thoughtful about the goals we're trying to meet as a collective and the goals that the individual is trying to contribute to the initiative or try to receive, right? And so when we have that interpersonal approach and understand each other's motivations, we are able to navigate that better, right? And mitigate some of those, the harms that just any interpersonal system is going to put on each other. Because we really constantly are just traumatizing each other. That's like what life is. You just, you're born, we traumatize each other. We love as much as we can, and then we die. 
So I look for tools to be able to concretely reduce the amount of trauma that we impose on each other as we kind of have this really cool altruistic effort to supercharge and expedite the intellectual property that we're putting out and disseminating into the universe, you know? So strategically, not answering your question, let's look at some tools. No, that's great. I love that answer. I love that non-answer answer. That's excellent. Follow-up question. When we talk about traumatizing each other and we talk about healthy communities of open source, often people respond to traumatic incidents with defense mechanisms and they often self-leave or are forced out of communities. Do you have any advice on making communities, not safe spaces necessarily, but brave spaces where people are able to work through psychological tensions, which are inevitable and which conflict, which is inevitable in any distribution of power, which includes code. Do you have any advice to help communities be more sustainable at navigating trauma and conflict in their communities without it becoming a drain on resources? Yeah, I'm going to follow up with another woo-woo answer, which I love and I double down on. I think we should lead with empathy. I have a talk coming up and I've given it before, but this is going to be a little bit more mature version of it where I use the tools of persona marketing, be able to identify and characterize different actors in the community. It's really cute little characterize them all as cute little dinosaurs and I come up with cute little names for them and it's a fun little talk. And being able to put either even a cartoon face and an attribute to them and the way that they're going to interact helps with empathy. You are creating a full person. You are reducing friction in that developer path, in that developer experience in your open source project. And many times we don't have the bandwidth to assign a product manager for an open source project. So we all have to be product managers or none of us are product managers. And that ends up to our detriment. But like understanding that that developer experience and reducing that friction is incredibly helpful. And that comes with either setup experience, right? Like you could use you know, not to shout out my employer too much, but like dev containers, or you can use like, you know, Gitpod or some other things, but you can create options for people to set up a Docker environment and start up their project very easily. And they can also do it through the browser. So that also adds accessibility and it can get into really technical details like that, but it could also be creating ways that people can move on projects asynchronously, right? So it doesn't always have to be a meeting. There always doesn't have to be this hierarchical approach of someone approving it. You can train more people to have PR merging capabilities and run off of trust. And I go into these really specific ideas and then I say like woo-woo concept of like empathy, but really walking in the path of like understanding where people are coming from and using that as a major approach and starting with this people first approach, doing your little woo-woo pies at the beginning of meeting can help with some of that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Don't worry. I think I'm the most woo-woo of all the sustained hosts. So I'm really glad to cover this topic. I think it's excellent. We are running up on time. So one of the questions I have for you that's timely is, where is this next talk? What are your next conferences that you think you sh- we should go to and listen to? Awesome. Yeah. So I'm going to give a list of conferences that you should be attending soon. They're all Python and Django. And then my talk hasn't been announced yet. So I don't want to you know, uh, I don't want to. Yeah. So it's going to be in one of these. We'll tweet it. We'll mastodon it. We'll tweet it out. Yes. Good, good, good. 
So there's PyCon is coming up, big PyCon that's in Salt Lake City. I wanted to double down on the fact that PyCon has a code of conduct as well. And as different states are doing different things, we are very sustained in that mission of following our code of conduct and creating safe spaces for us to just talk about code and to not be worried about our personhood. And I only attend conferences with really strong code of conducts. So PyCon is in April. DjangoCon US is in September, mid-September in Raleigh, North Carolina, or excuse me, Durham, North Carolina. Then we have DjangoCon Africa that's going to be in Tanzania in November. And then we have DjangoCon Europe, which will be in Edinburgh, Scotland. Those sound amazing. Thank you so much for that. I tried to get them for the show notes. If they're not in the show notes, you can always just Google things like JingleCon Europe. Thank you so much, Don. That's super cool. Where can people find more about you and your work and follow your goings on on the web? Yeah. So I'm mostly on Mastodon and I'm trying to move away from other social apps, but you can find me everywhere at Bajoran Engineer. And you can also find my website at dawnwages.info, D-W-N-W-A-G-E-S, sunrisepaycheck.info. So I just checked and sunrisepaycheck.info is not a taken domain, but it really ought to be. So I'm going to look and see if I can get that because that is, I mean, you should get it. I'm just saying that would also be very good. You could just redirect it. Oh, it's available. Oh, wait, no, one of them is. Anyway. Cool. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Don. Awesome. Obviously, I love the handle. Bajoran Engineer is the best. All power to the Bajoran engineers. But don't leave yet. Now is the part of the show where we get to spotlight other people and projects than ourselves. So this is really cool. Just going to shed light on some things that need light shed on them. So traditionally, the host goes first. Justin isn't here today. What? So I can't give him the thing. So my spotlight today is a beautiful, lovely woman named Danielle Garber. Danielle Garber is a very good friend of mine. She is amazing. And I'm bringing her up because she is not only a personal coach about weaving relationships, she's also a weaver who makes amazing hand-woven things in Massachusetts. She used to live in Oakland. If you like hand-woven things or learning about weaving, definitely check her out if you're in either of those places. But I bring her up because she is the person who first helped me learn a lot more about the power of checking in physically before checking in emotionally, before checking in about anything else. Because if you don't realize that you're triggered, the other person probably doesn't realize either. And then you don't get anywhere in your conversations. So just huge shout out to the person who taught me the most about that. Thank you, Danielle. You're lovely. And Don, what is your spotlight today? Okay, so I have two. Let's start with Jeff Triplett, who is the former treasurer, current director of the Python Software Foundation. He's the president of the Django Events Foundation of North America. Just really all around awesome human and has been just really integral in my career. And I don't shout him out enough. He's such a kind person and he just works so much in the community. And I don't understand how he does it. So shout out to Jeff Triplett. He's really awesome. And I also want to do a shout out to Coraline Ada Emke, who is the lead organizer for the Organization for Ethical Source. She's just brilliant and kind. And I just, I have a theme. I like kind people. So I'm just going to shout out Coraline. She engages in a lot of really amazing substantive discussions and our Slack group for Organization for Ethical Source. We're always talking about some really cool substantive topics and ethics. So appreciate that. And I appreciate the opportunity to shout out these really great people. Thank you for this little segment. It's great. Thank you so much. 
jazz hands for Ada. We had a sustained podcast called Ethics and Open Source with Ada. That podcast didn't have a lot of episodes and we should definitely have her on again. She is amazing. So thank you for that shout out. Guests, thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you have enjoyed it. If you have any thoughts on it, please do email us. You can email me at richard at sustainoss.org or podcast at sustainoss.org, which goes to all the hosts if you have any thoughts or comments. If you have any thoughts or comments for Dawn, her social media and various links will be available in the show notes, which you can find at podcast.sustainoss.org. So do check out there. We also have a discourse, discourse.sustainoss.org if you want to comment on the special thread, which will be started for this episode when it goes live. So thank you so much for doing that, Tina. And thank you, Don, for sharing all these awesome thoughts. Please like this episode wherever it is on Spotify, whatever. But also talk about it to your friends if you know you find it interesting because word of mouth is really the best way to get people to listen to this. Currently, we have like two to 300 listeners per episode. And I'm pretty sure that's a great amount, but we could probably get some more. So yeah, that'd be really cool. If you don't like this episode, if you don't like me, or if you don't like nachos, please let us know. Richard at sustainoss.org. I don't know what you have against nachos, but that's fine. And with that random discursive aside, Don, it was really great to have you on. Thank you so much for bringing your sunshine and your information about wages and capitalism and also <laughs> just better worlds to this space. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. 